Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And so we recorded a special live edition of the podcast last week at Star Trek Mission New York 2016. All three of us, Robert, Christian, and I, up in a conference room full of uh, Star Trek conference attendees. Yeah, it was uh, was really great. Uh, Hopefully some of the folks who were there in person are listening now. And if so, I just want to thank you once more for being a fabulous audience. Uh, Everyone seemed to really get into the topic. We had some fun chatting with folks after the show. Absolutely. So without further ado, here is our live episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Robert, you've got to start us. Star Trek history. Okay, so um, we're not going to pretend to be like the, the, the perfect Star Trek fans. Our knowledge is not perfect. Uh, but I certainly have a very warm place in my heart for Star Trek, the next generation especially, because I, I grew up watching it every evening in syndication at 9 p.m. It was my, my go-to. I would escape from the, the horrors of junior high and just, just pour myself into the hollow deck of Star Trek. Yeah, for me, I, I, I think Deep Space Nine was when I really dove in deep, but uh, I was talking to these guys the other day. Does anybody remember the Cheerios commercial right before Next Generation came out where you, they offered... Like, if you cut out on the back of the box, you could be, like, an extra in the next generation. That was, like, uh, I was, like, five, maybe six years old. And, and that's how we got Wesley Crusher. <laughs> that, that glued right in my head. But, yeah, I didn't, I, I guess I didn't make it. I didn't make the cut. <laughs> I am uh, far less trekucated than these two, even. I uh, I have to admit to the room. I, I love, like, the, the even-numbered movies, as they say, and I've watched some highlight episodes from the original series, like uh, Balance of Terror. And what's the one where they, uh, Kirk and Spock go back in time and they wear these, like, cool 1930s suits and some lady gets hit by a car? It, that was a good one. Uh, then also I, I watched the first season of Next Generation, and I really loved the planets that looked like a, a 1990s, like, family portrait photo studio filled with potted trees. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the Prime Directive, because it, while we are by no means experts on the Prime Directive, uh, it does relate quite a bit to the real-world science that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and, and uh, I mentioned we don't, we don't have to tell you guys what the Prime Directive is. Uh, you know, it is... Um it, it's the philosophy of the Federation, right? It is the, it's an anti-colonialist, uh, for that matter, anti-Vietnam War ethos, a policy of, of non-interference, don't mess around with the natural progression or demise uh, of, of life on a given world, right? It is a, it, don't get involved in its, uh, its cultural ascension. Let it, let it happen. Yeah, and one of the major questions that's going to be important to uh, talking about planetary contamination later that we had was, is observing, merely observing a violation of the Prime Directive? And from what I could tell, it seems like no, although it seems like... uh, uh, there's there's quite a bit of instances. The one that I remember the most is in Star Trek Insurrection, you know, when Data's running around in the invisible suit and goes crazy and rips his mask off and everybody just sees a floating Brent Spiner head. This is the one where F. Murray Abraham played the villain. Correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so that clearly violated the observing thing. Uh, and then apparently, I haven't seen this one, but there's a Next Generation episode called Who Watches the Watchers, where uh, Riker and Troy put on makeup so they look like they're members of this indigenous race so they can observe what's going on there. 
we're not quite there yet, uh, <laughs> but but it seems like observing's okay, right? Yeah, I mean, as long as, of course, you're not seen observing, that's kind of the the primatologist's uh, view on it, right? You, right. you you want to be able to observe uh, these creatures in their natural habitat, uh, but if they see you, then you you've already disrupted everything. Yeah. And obviously, nothing disrupts a would disrupt a a, a culture's ascension, a, a planetary uh, culture's ascension more than seeing a, a starship suddenly appear in the sky. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, yeah, that's another good example of uh, that we'll talk about later when we get into cargo cults. Is the scene in uh, Star Trek into darkness, of course, at the beginning where they see the Enterprise and then they, they start sort of worshipping it by drawing images of it in the sand. Uh, so I, I can actually think of worse if they piped in some, like, Van Halen singles. <laughs> I could see that that could go beyond the starship. But, you know, one of the I think things- it would be Beastie Boys, given uh, oh, yeah. that, that particular version of... Multiple uh, incorporations. Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, w- one of the things about the Prime Directive as... Throughout the show, I mean, even a a, uh, a Star Trek light viewer like me can observe is that it's not a rule that's simply followed, but it's something that is often debated. People are weighing the pros and cons. Uh, that, you know, they often want to have a conversation about, well, should we follow the non-intervention, you know, uh, guidelines, or should we step in to help where we can? And a lot of times, it's sort of like the following the lawful path versus following the good path. Yeah, it reminds me a lot too of the the journalist's um, conundrum at times. Like, if I'm am I going to observe? Am I going to stand back and take this photo, or do I jump in and help in a situation where help is required? Yeah. So this leads us into the the. Let's just break down the very beginning or uh, science that we're going to talk about today. What's the difference between planetary protection and planetary contamination? Well, protection is a term that we give to our goal to protect other celestial bodies. Actually, now we're talking about planets moons, comets, or asteroids here. Uh, we don't want to contaminate them with life from here on Earth as we're going throughout the galaxy, mainly the solar system right now, and uh, interacting with them. That's what's called forward contamination, uh, us contaminating other celestial bodies. And, and later in this presentation, we will give you some examples where that has already happened, unfortunately. Uh, but... We also want to protect Earth, right? We don't want a scenario like uh, the Andromeda strain to happen. So uh, we want to make sure that Earth is protected from possible life forms that may have returned from uh, extraterrestrial samples. Uh, anybody here familiar with the OSIRIS-REx mission that's taking off in the next couple of, I think it's like in the next month, right? Uh, NASA is sending a spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx to the asteroid Bennu. And the goal is to go to Bennu, uh, scoop a piece of dirt off of Bennu, put it into a capsule, and then bring it back to Earth so that we can study it, uh, mainly about so that they can get some ideas about the origin of life. They think Bennu has got some particularly carbon-rich uh, minerals in it that might give us some, some kind of uh, history to the universe. So in that case, we really don't want there to be, I don't know, like space worms on it that are going to affect everybody and turn us into zombies or something. So in the unlikely scenario that this uh, this return, the soil return from the asteroid has some kind of microbe in it that could infect our bodies, uh, what if they bring it back and it escapes from contamination, the uh, the retrieval areas? What if it explodes in the atmosphere upon reentry and then scatters all over the place? They're not very worried about that with the OSIRIS-REx mission because there, there are not very good scientific reasons for thinking you're likely to encounter life on an asteroid. An asteroid's just a death zone. It's out in the middle of space. It's bombarded by radiation, micrometeoroid impacts, and there's just 
it's not a friendly place to live. Yeah. But there are some other places in the solar system that we do think are, are much more likely to be friendly to life. Yeah, probably the bathrooms here at the Javits Center are friendly <laughs> to life, I would imagine. Uh, no, but uh, so we're talking about backward contamination when we're talking about these asteroids bringing samples back. In particular, NASA's worried about Mars. I don't know if any of you have been down to the show floor yet, but they have a really cool exhibit about their plans for Mars missions. And if you talk to some of the uh, NASA volunteers that are down there, uh, they know all about backward contamination and what their policies are concerning this. We'll talk a little bit about it today, but we're or not the experts. Right. But then also you might be asking, so the reason for preventing backward contamination is obvious. We don't want to get infected with space germs and all die. Well, this is the selfish side of it, right? I mean, right. We, we know, like, whatever you get into out there, don't bring it back home. Don't, uh, yeah. not, not, don't bring it back and then and potentially mess up our environment. Right. But the motivations for preventing the contamination of other bodies in the solar system is maybe less obvious. Uh, like, why would you care if a probe that you send to Mars or uh, Saturn's moon Titan has microbes living on it? I mean, who cares? They're probably going to die anyway. What does it matter? Well, there are several reasons we want to prevent that. One is protecting science objectives. Yeah. Uh, so if we're going to Titan or to Mars to try to figure out if there is microbial life living in the soil there, we don't want to take contaminants with it that are going to make it impossible for us to do that scientific research. Yeah, I mean, it's like visiting a crime scene, right? You don't want somebody to go in and leave their fingerprints or their genetic material all over the place because right. we need to get down to who has had access to it. And it's a similar right. case with, with a, a foreign body. It would be like it, if detectives investigating a crime scene couldn't investigate it very easily without having all the prime suspects come in and bleed everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, exactly. But but it's difficult. But then there are also other potential concerns. One is the protection of indigenous life. So introducing microbial life forms to a new environment very often kills what's already there. And it's quite possible that if there are life forms on Titan or on Enceladus, Europa, Mars, and we bring our own microbes there, there could be a, a battle of the bacteria and our bacteria might win. Again, that's very bad, obviously, for those bacteria. You could have a debate about whether that ethically matters or not. Uh, you know, should we care about those bacteria? But it certainly matters for the science. We, we want to be able to know if they're there, and so we don't want to kill them all. And then uh, a final reason is that we can disturb natural environments by introducing life forms, just like uh, bacteria here on Earth and, and uh, uh, small organisms have geoengineered the Earth. You know, they've changed our atmospheric composition. Yeah. We don't want to potentially do that to other planets in the solar system by accident. So let's give you like a like a real world analogy that'll sort of hopefully bring it all together, right? Like whenever you travel abroad with an animal here in on Earth, right? You usually have to have documents of some sort that they have their vaccinations, right? So it's a similar sort of situation. You don't you, you would sometimes quarantine an animal in those situations. You also don't want to well. You do, you have to declare agricultural items when you come into and out of certain countries, right? right. So How many people here have been through customs before? That's. You're supposed to. Exactly. Yeah, it's fun, right? I mean, uh, so like the, the, the example that we're going to use here is like, what if we brought a watermelon up here from Florida and it's just filled with mosquitoes that are infected with the Zika virus, right? Well, that probably wouldn't be a great example, uh, because you guys would hate that, but, that would be forward contamination. 
Yeah, I mean, you you can find plenty of examples just by thinking of all of the missteps that we've uh, we've taken in our yeah uh, in, in our in our you know recent history here on Earth, spreading invasive species uh, across the planet and, and exactly. destabilizing uh, natural environments. Mm-hmm. The carp, car, uh, yeah. carp fish are a notorious invasive species here in America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have so, a podcast about that, by the way. You can look it up. It's about <laughs> jumping fish in, in the uh, rivers of the Midwest. They jump out of the water and smash people's face bones. They do. It's pretty cool. Do, but Joe, is there any law? Is there anything that's, like, keeping us from doing this? Like, why can't I just build my own rocket and shoot a Zika mosquito into outer space? That is a good question. So there actually are guidelines for how you're supposed to behave in space. In fact, there are tons of different organizations, treaties, that put space law and space guidelines in into place. Where's the boundary between law and guidelines? I don't know. A lot of times we haven't tested that boundary, so we don't know exactly what would happen if you broke certain guidelines, but we have them. Uh, For example, what prevents Spain from flying to Europa here? This is Jupiter's moon Europa. Uh, It's believed that it could possibly contain life because it's got an icy crust with liquid oceans underneath it. There could be something living in that water. What prevents Spain from flying a rocket to Europa sticking a flag down in the ice and saying, I declare Europa for Spain. It is Spanish territory now. Well, fortunately, we have the UN Outer Space Treaty, and all signatories and parties of the treaty agree that, for example, you can't go claim the moon for your country. It doesn't belong to you. It's the the common heritage of all mankind, and you can access it equally. Yet. But there are other things that are entailed by this treaty as well, right? Yeah, well, it was developed in 1967. It was really, you know, in the middle of the Cold War, but they managed to get the U.S., the Soviet Union, the U.K., and a couple other countries to sit down and, you know, agree to this at the United Nations to prohibit mainly countries from placing nuclear arms or other WMD weapons of mass destructions, uh, destructions, destruction, <laughs> uh, in outer space. So that was mainly why this was put together. But it also holds all nations accountable for whatever their various actions are in outer space according to international law. So that's important. It does kind of underlie one of the problems with any of this kind of legislation is they always emerge from the time in in which they're rolled out. They speak to very specific uh, near uh, future concerns. And when it gets to the the, the more far future concerns – they don't really grapple with them uh, with 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 the degree of detail that might be necessary. Yeah, that's the thing of this. And um, there were arguments not like a year or two after it had first been written that it was already uh, either too stringent or not stringent enough. And we're still seeing arguments like that today, decades later. So a lot of people argue the Outer Space Treaty is out of date and needs to be updated. Uh, but in any case, how it relates exactly to the topic we're talking about today is that Article 9 of the UN Outer Space Treaty says that all parties to the treaty have to avoid harmful contamination of the moon and other celestial bodies, and they also have to avoid adverse changes in the environment of Earth resulting from the introduction of extraterrestrial matter. So... That's pretty vague, right? It, it basically just says uh, don't pollute outer space with our microbes and don't bring anything you find out there back here that could kill us. Uh, so, so how's this supposed to work? Like, so Spain's going to go plant their flag on Europa, right? So yeah. how's that work? Can, Sp- can Spain just do that on their own? 
I, they can't do it at all. What are you talking about? Exactly. So Spain is supposed to go to all the other international bodies and say, hey, we're about to uh, send the – I think everybody would be pretty astonished if they did that. But they, they're they gonna we're going to send a flag up to Europa, right? They're supposed to tell everybody what their plans are, what their mission parameters are, and what kind of regulations they have in place. Uh, now, that holds for international bodies like nation states. It doesn't necessarily hold for commercial entities, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So, for instance, um, I'm sure many of you have heard that uh, the SpaceX rocket exploded yesterday on the platform, right? Um, what if it didn't explode on the platform? What if it exploded in orbit uh, and it contained something? Yeah. Or what if it was an orbiter orbiting Mars and it exploded there and showered Mars with whatever was inside it? Or it was returning from an asteroid orbiting Earth and exploded in the atmosphere? So, okay, so we've got this this outer space treaty from the United Nations, okay? That's about as close to the Federation as we have right now. (laughs) Um, What do we do... Then for these guidelines, like who, who cooks up these guidelines? Who decides between all these various space agencies all over the planet right now, what, how, how do we prevent backward or forward contamination? Well, yeah, so the UN treaty gives us the, the vague objectives. The actual, uh, some more specifics, I guess, come from what's known as the COSPAR planetary protection policy. Yeah, so COSPAR stands for the Committee on Space Research. It's part of the International Council of Science. So it's an, an international body, but it's it's mainly like a committee uh, that has a panel within it. It's a little uh, arcane here. Uh, but the, plan, the panel focuses on planetary protection. Now, keep in mind, the policies that COSPAR puts out are not legally binding in any way. It's just a set of guidelines on contamination that nations should consider. And they've got five categories that they look at, uh, and they're for various possibilities. There's flybys, orbiters, landers, probes, non-Earth returns, and then Earth returns. And those are the ones that we're the most worried about because they're the most likely to have backward contamination involved. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more of this special live episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And we're back. Okay, well, maybe we should transition to another question, which is, uh, why should we even worry about this? I mean, yeah, man, this why now? are my tax dollars going to this? <laughs> yeah, well, it's an, it's an interesting question because it, we look at all this, this uh, legislation and sort of pseudo-legislation in some, some cases where it really paints biocontamination up as this, this is kind of like the, the ultimate sin, you know? I mean, breaking the prime directive, really. But what if it's less of a sin and more just the, the way things work in the universe? What if it's a cosmic standard? And in that, it would line up rather nicely with panspermia hypothesis. So, uh, the idea that life exists throughout the universe, it's spread from place to place by meteorites, asteroids, comets, planetary fragments, and yes, even spaceships carrying hardy extremophile Microbes, And there are a few different variants of panspermia uh, that play into this. Uh, the, the first one I'm going to mention here real quick is radiopanspermia. Yeah, and popular podcasts, right? Yeah, radio, yeah, radio panspermia. panspermia. Yeah, you can yeah. listen to it. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's out of uh, WNYC. Yeah. But um, th- this is 
the dust in the wind hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. And this is pretty cool because yeah, there are no rocks, no spaceships. The idea is that the microorganisms may live in space driven by radiation pressure away from distant, distant stars. So it's very, if we have any Lovecraft readers in the, in the audience, it's very Lovecraftian feeling, like some, like, like the Mego uh, creatures flying across uh, the void. Sort of an exhalation of cosmic horror just floating yeah. free. Fortunately, for, for any of you who are not fans of cosmic horror drifting in, uh, most of what we know about the, the lethal nature of space radiation tends to rule this one out. But then there's uh, lithopanspermia, and this is the one that most of the attention is uh, revolving around. That's the idea that you have rocks uh, that go from one planet to another, um, and it jives far better with our understanding of life. Microbes just have to be able to survive ejection from their planet, survival through the radiation, radiation swept void, and then atmospheric reentry into planet B. Um, yeah, and this this is actually something that uh, some nations on Earth are trying to test the hypothesis of. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Yeah. But that's one of the instances where we may have been responsible for forward contamination. Right. There's even a you know hypothesis that uh, life traveled throughout our own solar system. That life on Earth might have originated on Mars. Yeah, exogenesis. And then there's some kind of major impact that spread it from one planet to another. Uh, again, this is not something we know or that there's strong evidence for. It's just very interesting. Interesting possibility. Now, as as, uh, as far as panspermia goes, uh, th- obviously you have two possible variants here on top of this. There's accidental, and then there is directed. Accidental is the the idea that the the Spanish go to Europa and they leave some trash there, right? That we accidentally seed life on other worlds. The other is uh, directed panspermia, and this is the stuff of uh, of Prometheus. This is the stuff of the, the founders in Trek, right? It means the deliberate seeding of worlds. Uh, and it comes up both in terms of near-future concerns. We don't want to accidentally seed a world with life, according to some. But then there are those who advocate, well, yeah, we should. We should see yeah, dead not? worlds. Why not? I mean, life is kind of what we're all about. Uh, that's that's kind of our thing here on Earth. Why shouldn't we want to see this flourish uh, elsewhere in the universe? So, okay, we've we've thrown a lot of theory at you all of a sudden, all this panspermia stuff, but let's get down to some concrete examples. Where has this happened before in our recent past? Well, uh, arguably, you mean, I mean panspermia? Or you're, no, you're I talking mean, about planetary protection policies. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about backward and forward contamination, yeah. Well, let's start with looking at some protection against backward contamination. I want to visit a picture from space history with you. A lot of you m- may have seen this before, but um, if you can see the screens... So here we have a picture of the Apollo 11 astronauts after they returned from the moon. And they are, uh, they're, they're on board. This is July 24th, 1969. I believe, did I get that date right? Yeah. But anyway, so they're on board the USS Hornet in the Pacific Ocean after they've splashed down. And the three of them are contained inside this metal box. Uh, and so, uh, what is this box? To me, this picture has always looked like Nixon has trapped them in some sort of steel pizza oven, and he's about to bake them, and he's explaining to them that he's about to bake them and how good but they're going to But look how happy taste. they are about it. <laughs> they're thrilled. They're laughing. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so so what is this box? Well, th- this box is known as the Mobile Quarantine Facility. And in reality, it was a converted Airstream trailer, like you would travel around in and 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, you take the family to go see the Grand Canyon or something in it. Uh, but the trailer maintained quarantine on the freshly returned astronauts. Now, why would they need to maintain quarantine? It's like that scene in Alien when, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ash returns with the alien on his face and, and Ripley's saying, I don't think we should let him in, and then they ignore her. And one of the great lawful neutral characters in science fiction is overridden. Ripley uh, is really kind of a patron saint of, uh, of, of planetary protection. Yeah, she yeah. is. <laughs> totally. I, I would agree with that. But anyway, so, so how did they keep this quarantine? Well, uh, th- they kept the air pressure inside the, the Airstream trailer lower than the pressure outside, so things would want to be pushing in rather than bleeding out. And then they filtered all exchanged air. And then also on their way from the splashdown point, when the astronauts came down in the water to the uh, MQF, they had to wear these sealed suits called bigs or biological isolation garments, and they look great. They're like full-body gas masks, uh, you know, the, the kind of thing you see in those uh, apocalyptic movies where there's a radiation event and everybody runs in with guns in the biocontainment suits. It's kind of like what Data wears in that episode with the, where he's observing everybody, yeah. and then he just rips that mask right off. Episode? Wait, that was a movie, wasn't no, it? No, sorry, a movie, yeah. yeah you're right. These are the of kind of details that are going to get us chewed out after this panel's <laughs> over. Uh, it, but wait a feel minute. free so to chew us have, out. You, you have a theory here that I think you should share with the audience. Oh, ho- hold on, I'm getting to that. All right. Okay, so, so after the Apollo, Apollo 11 astronauts, they'd been on the moon, they returned to Earth, they were kept in quarantine in this trailer with a bathroom and a kitchen. I'm sure it was just great. Uh, they had to spend 21 days in here they to make sure... That, in there? Yeah, they That's had a bathroom. Nice. Uh, to make sure that they didn't set loose anything that they brought back with them. And I, I always wondered, okay, so what happens if one of the astronauts does start to show signs that they have contracted in an infection? I mean, nothing happened, but what would they have done if Buzz Aldrin started erupting with parasitic moonworms? And would they just keep the other two guys in there and just have, like, Nixon watching through the window, like, oh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm what picturing the it's like there, that but... scene in the thing where, like, the do- the one dog right. starts turning and just like tentacles shooting everywhere, ripping the other dogs apart. They wouldn't have much choice. They just have to set the whole thing on fire. <laughs> well, anyway, fortunately, nothing happened to our brave astronauts. But but why were people so afraid? Uh, I have a pet theory. So th- this was July of 1969, and do y'all know what movie came out in 1968? What? <laughs> that would be amazing. If Barbarella. I'm trying to get my. Oh, okay. I'm sure Richard Nixon loved Barbarella. Uh, Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. We're just, I'm just we're uh, failing here. Here. Much suspense here. There we go. There we no, it was Night of the Living Dead. Does anybody remember in Night of the Living Dead what explanation is given by the scientists on TV who are talking about why the dead have come back to life? Anybody remember? It's radioactive contamination that's hitching a ride on a probe that is returned from Venus. Now, the radioactive contamination part doesn't really make any sense, but I can see how this might have planted a seed in people's heads. Uh, anyway, so the, the the procedure ended, and I'm kidding, by the way. I mean, they've, they've been talking at NASA about uh, protecting the planet for, for many years about forward and backward contamination. But, but it just goes to show you. Not to discount the, yeah. the power that uh, that fiction and, and popular media oh, has sure. on, on the, the psyche. I think the idea, yeah, exactly. The idea was in the zeitgeist. I mean, we're seeing it in U.N. policy. We're seeing it in movies and then yeah. obviously in actual space missions. What year did the Andromeda strain by Michael Crichton come out? Was that 1969? I think it might have been. So right around the same time. I mean, this was obviously on people's minds. 
And, uh, you know, I, I think for good reason. But then the procedure after, uh, it ended after Apollo 14 when scientists, they're like, eh, we've been to the moon. The moon's dead. You know, it's dead. We've seen it. They, they just weren't really worried about microbial life being there anymore. And it, that, that makes sense, too, because the fear of backward contamination is one of those things that we don't even know what all of the numbers to plug into our risk equation are because we don't know how common life is out there. I mean, it could be that all kinds of planetary bodies out there are teeming with life that we could bring back and could kill us, or it could be a totally dead universe except for Earth. We we just have no idea yet. Are you familiar with the Drake equation? So let's let's explain it just quickly. Oh, the Drake equation well, is well, if it's a hypothetical equation uh, in the history of thinking about technological civilizations in the galaxy, for you know, you come up with a number of other technological civilizations in the Milky Way by multiplying together all these variables, like the number of habitable planets, the probability that life will arise on a habitable planet, the probability that intelligence will arise from life, and you, you multiply all these together and you get your number of Planets, but the problem is most of the variables in the equation are just a big question mark. And so it's kind of the same if we were to come up with a formula for backward and forward contamination. Right. Uh, but, but this doesn't mean we should end our concerns because after all, scientists are going to want to do uh, sample returns from all kinds of objects in the solar system. And until we know, it's probably a good idea to practice caution. So we want to have Mars sample return. We pick up some soil from Mars, bring it back. Uh, pick up some methane-soaked soil from Titan. I love the idea of what organisms might be like on Titan. They might be these super cold, slow metabolism, long planning, slow moving organisms that, uh, uh, I don't know. The, the slow ones are scarier to me. I'm thinking like a Greenland shark, basically. Yeah, yeah. Very sleepy. But uh, anyway, about, also... You let from D&D, the land sharks? Mm-hmm, yeah. I don't even know what that is. No, we're going to have to educate you, Joe. I'll get chewed out for that, too. Uh, but then also, uh, like water from the, uh, Jupiter's moon Europa, like we talked about earlier, or from Saturn's moon Enceladus. Uh, but then there's also the forward contamination concern that we could look at uh, from the past. Okay, so you got Mars here. This is the landscape of Mars. What if we want to send a probe to Mars? Uh, what lengths should we go to to make sure that nothing is alive on that probe in case there's something alive on Mars to contaminate? Uh, or even just in case that there are uh, places where organisms we bring with us could settle in and, and make a new home and uh, contaminate our future science. Well, we have sent landers to Mars before, of course. You'll probably know that. Uh, how about the Viking landers, right? We set the Viking landers one and two down uh, on the surface of Mars in the 1970s. And at the time, we had very little idea what might be on the surface of Mars. You had people like Carl Sagan and uh, saying that there, there could be microbes there. And if there is a microbial environment on Mars, we don't want to destroy it. So we need to put rigorous standards in place to make sure that the probes we send are as sterile as dental equipment. They're just, yeah. you know, the more. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we uh, set our uh, Dental equipment on fire. Well, you know this. This underlies, you know, one of the, one of the big problems about trying to be to behave, um, you know, uh, w- with with cleanliness to, to avoid uh, contamination of other other planets is that it's it's kind of the wild west, and, you, yeah. and the idea of like a sterile wild west just doesn't uh, doesn't jive with how we operate. I I agree. That's true. I mean, then again, yeah. So this highlights this tension again like how much how much time and money should we put into this how much does it really matter well 
I'm glad that you asked, Joe, because there's two recent examples that'll show you how much or how little it may matter. Uh, remember I was talking about that there uh, were some missions that were testing uh, this, this panspermia idea, right? Well, in 2010, I don't know if you heard about this, but the director of the International Committee Against Mars Sample Return, that's a thing, his name's Barry E. D. Gregorio, he wrote a piece in New Scientist magazine about how there's a Rus- there was a Russian mission that was going to Phobos, Mars Moon, and it was called the Phobos Grunt. I love the name <laughs> yeah. of this mission, Phobos Grunt. Uh, and it was supposed to be similar to Osiris Rex. It was supposed to go to Phobos. It was going to get a sample of the moon. And uh, the idea was that while it was there, it was also going to test transpermia by leaving life behind on Phobos. That's transpermia. The transpermia, idea that, like, not could we transfer deliberately a, an organism yeah. to this place and it survived. The, the, the basic idea being similar to the rocks thing we were talking about yeah. earlier, that, that planets get life forms on them from rocks being ejected from meteorites or asteroid collisions, okay? But the probe totally failed and fell back to Earth. It, it was actually destroyed over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, at the time, this is, what, six years ago now, Russia's space program had several space failures in a row, and the head of their space agency actually publicly wondered if there were saboteurs at work. So maybe this Committee Against Mars sample return was up to no good. <laughs> well, that makes me wonder, if, yeah, so do we have planetary protection ninjas out there who are <laughs> secret might. spies going around trying to enforce it's planetary like protection a, guidelines by sabotaging missions that are not appropriately about abiding by them. It's like uh, Gary Busey's son in Contact, right? Wasn't he like uh, <laughs> against that? Uh, so there was another one. Unfortunately, it wasn't Russia this time. It was us. We, we uh, committed forward contamination when uh, in 2011 we were working on the Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity rover. After it had already launched, they discovered that there was a set of drill bits that they had put on board and they had not been sent through their final sterilization step. God, uh, dirty drill bits. That's horrible. <laughs> they were very dirty. Uh, but it deviated totally from procedure, so much so that NASA's planetary protection officer, who I'm going to talk about later and is the most important woman in the world, uh, <laughs> she recognized this is a problem. There was a lot of miscommunication. We're going to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. They weren't that concerned about it because where they were sending this lander to is a place called the Gale Crater on Mars, and it was mostly just dead ice. They didn't think that it was possible that there was any life that could be harbored there, and, uh, especially as deep as these drill bits were going to be going down. So they, they were hoping, crossing their fingers, that they weren't going to commit forward contamination. But it slipped through the system despite the fact that we've got COSPAR and all these guidelines and everything. Well, it, you know, it, it comes comes down to just like the, the just the rigors of sterilization because it's one thing to you go to the dentist and you see that neat little tray of items there, right? And, yeah, it's like that's not that big of a, of a deal, right, to sterilize a few different instruments and yeah. have like a fresh little packet of horrible toothpaste to open. But <laughs> But then imagine going on a family vacation. Like, how would you sterilize all that? You got to sterilize the van, the the clothing for the for the children, right? The 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 toothbrush, the toothpaste, the children, right? The there dog. You, you highlight a problem is that you, you, it's hard to sterilize people. Um, so, what are some protocol options? We we got a probe. We want to send it to Mars. We want to send it to Titan, and we want to make sure that it is just 
pristine, has nothing on it. Well, so one option is we can build in a clean room. So like those clean rooms you see electronics are constructed in, people wearing the bunny suits, and then you have to go through decontamination to get in. Would this be the same as uh, when I'm watching, say, uh, like a drug dealer movie where they have Probably, people in their yeah. underwear? I think everybody wears clothes in these ones. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't think that New they're Jack worried City. about okay. people trying to escape from the clean room with pieces of the, the lander. But maybe, maybe they should be. Uh, but they, so you can also clean it with solvents, like spray it down with some cleaner, just wipe it out. You can. This is a wonderful phrase that I've heard from several NASA scientists involved in this. You can bake it out. Uh, so that's dry heat baking of the environment uh, of the thing you're going to send but the problem with that is a lot of times they have sensitive instruments on them uh these don't respond very well to a lot of the uh, the, the sterilization tactics we want to use so if you have sensitive equipment and electronics on something how hot can you bake it before you damage all that stuff you can also encase it in some kind of bio shield, essentially put it in a big plastic bag or plastic container until it gets out of the atmosphere. Um, you, there have been also other methods that have been explored in the past. I know like uh, gassing things with killer gas, ethylene oxide, or uh, radiation bombardment. Though a problem with radiation bombardment is that's not as effective at killing microbial life as it is at killing people, you know, larger organisms like us. And, you know, back to the sensitive uh, instrument uh, aspect of this, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about is internal stuff that is ideally not going to be a factor unless the thing explodes or crashes or right. gets torn apart by, a, like, a large space monster and, and partially consumed. Yeah, I mean, you, you point out that this a reason this is all much harder than it sounds. So you think, like, okay, I could sterilize, you know, dental equipment again. I can sterilize that, wipe yeah. it down. You can sterilize the whole of something conceivably, but when you start talking about all but, the insides. R- exactly. So if this thing explodes and the interior components leak out all over the planet, that they've got to be clean, too, and that's so so hard to do. And then once you enter crewed missions, missions with humans on them, there's a whole other stage because you cannot bake out an astronaut. There's no way to do it. You bring you bring microbial life with you. They can't just wipe you down and make you clean. You'll so wait a minute. What do we flora. do with the stuff that's inside of us? Well, for one thing, you, you poop some of it out. So that introduces the question of should we poop on Mars? I think this is a very important thing going forward in human space exploration. Yeah, there should be a whole department dedicated to that. And they just have those, like, doggy bags. Yeah. yeah you, should you bring the same ethic uh, to to Mars that you bring to your neighborhood when you go out and walk your dog? You you pick it up with you. Hopefully, you wouldn't be pooping on the ground in Mars. But yeah, that would be rough. Uh, however, there are current efforts that are in this area. Specifically, NASA is what we're going to focus on. So, together with the uh, the UN treaty that we talked about and COSPAR, there is a basic guideline idea for how we should go forward with this stuff. And it's all overseen by who I mentioned earlier, NASA's Planetary Protection Officer. Uh, She oversees compliance with requirements for each mission, and she's typically directly involved in the development and planning stages of all missions that occur in our solar system. Uh, Her name is Catherine Conley. You probably don't hear about her all that much. I don't know why. She's super important. She makes sure that NASA and all U.S. organizations that journey into space adhere to that U.N. space treaty. She's way more important than a Kardashian. Like, I don't understand why, and I don't mean uh, Star Trek Kardashians. I mean the, 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 (laughs) the reality TV ones. 
Uh, I'm just I'm surprised that she's not more high profile. Well, she doesn't rep- represent like the sexy side of yeah. space exploration. I right? know, but man, she's important. Like, yeah, no doubt. If it if it weren't for her, she's like Wilford Brimley in the thing. It, it, it's the kind of office where you immediately know the person occupying the office once there has been a major screw yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. In it. Yeah, we'll uh, all learn her name when there's some huge catastrophe. Uh, but she just did an interview with Scientific American in the last couple of years, and she stated that she's actually less worried about astro and, you know, not so much worried about the NASA stuff because they're following these guidelines we talked about. Uh, the one thing that she's concerned about are commercial entities sending missions into space because NASA isn't supporting all of those, and there's no oversight for any of them, especially with regards to planetary protection. So currently the Federal Aviation Administration is in charge of launches and landings, but only within our atmosphere. There's nobody in charge of space. So uh, NASA is a regulatory agency, and they can't do anything about it either. What happens uh, if uh, there's a commercial mission, like we mentioned earlier, uh, maybe they scoop up some dirt off an asteroid or Mars or something and then accidentally backward contaminate the Earth? This is the opening of a James Bond movie, right? You have <laughs> somebody who, it's like Moonraker, except, uh, probably, hopefully better. Uh, they, they want to Moonraker's go. great. Moonraker, I think if I had to, to rewatch a Bond film right now, it would be Moonraker. Moonraker's yeah. the one where a pigeon does a double take. You remember that? <laughs> like, he drives by on a car that comes out of the water and the pigeon, uh. <laughs> anyway, uh, we stray from the subject. Back, back to the requirements that we have for these space, space missions, we have certain cleanliness requirements, as Joe was talking about, right? Like how sterile they get, how much we bake them out, all that kind of stuff. So here's the question related to Star Trek. Does the Federation have a cleanliness policy? I couldn't find anything about this online. Do they have, like, some clean rooms on board the ships where they make sure that everything is, like, super clean and they don't have to worry about uh, backward or forward contamination? Does anybody know? Oh, yeah. Oh, we have an answer. Somebody. Oh, that oh yes. that's smart. Okay. Yeah, because the transport kills everything that goes through it anyway, including you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We uh, were guessing that it had something to do with the transporters, but we weren't a hundred percent sure. Yeah. Like for me, I start thinking about cleanliness and transporters, and then I, I just go down a rabbit hole of thinking about the fly and like how do you <laughs> how do you root out fly DNA when you have to worry about other like all the microorganisms that are part of the human body? But that's a separate. That's, that's, yeah, a separate that's true. Brundle should have become Brundle gut flora rather than just Brundle fly. Yeah. The general rules that we operate under now, though, don't have transporters, unfortunately. Right. So we try to avoid unintended encounters with objects in our solar system, especially those that have a probability of no more than one in a thousand of there being life on them. This is, uh, the ideal is that it's supposed to extend for 50 years after a mission arrives at its protected target. So... But just think about all the organic molecules that could accidentally get on something just from us, just from us breathing, like this microphone right now. I'm getting all kinds of bacteria on it. Uh, or shedding your dead skin all over, mm, right? Yeah, so we, we basically walk around hair. in life and, uh, with, a, with just a cloud of dead skin uh, yeah. falling behind us. We really do. So similar to COSPAR, NASA actually has five categories that they use for planetary protection as well. Their main concerns are about, you know, whether the mission is critical to discovering the origin of life, how much of a chance there is that contamination will be a part of it, 
and they look at protection requirements from everything from what is referred to as bio-burden reduction uh, <laughs> to clean rooms and bake-offs, as we talked about earlier. I, I think right. it, instead of the Great British Bake Off, they should have the Great NASA Bake Off. I would watch that. <laughs> Just like cooking the Osiris Rex to perfection. Uh, but it's pretty rare that they actually sterilize any of these crafts. The most concerning of these missions, like I mentioned earlier, are the ones that will return to Earth after they've brought something back. Now, there's unrestricted returns, and that is when we go to something that has theoretically no chance of life, like the moon. Like we just mentioned earlier, they're pretty sure that there's nothing on the moon unless there's, like, Transformers buried under there. Like they're, they're at least confident enough to gamble with the life of everyone on Earth. But the restricted ones are the ones that we're worried about. Those are the ones where there is the possibility or a sign of what is referred to as a non-terrestrial replicating organism. So, so life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we get worried about that. Here's the reality, though. No matter what we do, these missions will never be 100% secure. Uh, our detection methods are getting better and better every day, and we're starting to realize, oh, hey, these missions that we thought were sterile that we sent off 10 years ago, we totally, they were filthy. Yeah. Uh, we sent all kinds of things into space. So, Well, our biodetection capabilities are getting better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, too, that, that UN space treaty is just getting old and inadequate. So this stuff really needs to be reviewed, especially when you've got Elon Musk firing rockets up like every week. This uh, One more concern I think we should introduce is the fact that this is not just an Earth problem. The forward and backward contamination problem is a problem that we take with us anywhere we go. So if we establish a space station, you know, like a big space station like they have in, uh, I don't know, Mass Effect or something, it's got people walking all over it, that, that is essentially like a new Earth that has the same considerations with it. Anytime you leave it, you are taking a forward contamination risk with you. Anytime you come back to it, you're taking a backward contamination risk with you. Uh, so this is, it's not so much about the Earth as a rock, but about humanity and humanity's dwelling space, or not just humanity, Earth life dwelling space. Okay. But now, everything we've talked about so far has been biocontamination. We've been dealing with microorganisms. Yeah. But, of course, there are, there are other ways to contaminate uh, a, 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 an alien world, especially if that alien world, you know, potentially has language, it has a culture. Sure. We could, uh, we could culturally contaminate that world with, you know, some of our uh, our, our, our top 20 uh, musical hits. Right. The Van Halen hits, yeah. exactly as we said before. So... Maybe we should start yeah, with the backward contamination concerns because that's more uh, clear to us what the risks could be. So imagine we've got radio telescope array that we have decided to, you know, listen to a certain patch of sky that we think might have alien life on it, and we actually do get a message. Uh, uh, you know, they're listening to the Tau SETI system. It's about 12 light years away, and this obvious sign of alien intelligence comes through. It is clearly a message. It's made for us to be able to decode and understand it, and we do. And what do the messages contain? Well, imagine it contains, like, coded schematics for building some kind of machine. What is the machine? Or it's maybe the holy text of a Talsetian religion. Or it is a statement of intentions, just like, hello, here we are, here's our attitude toward you. I would argue that any of these things could potentially be as destructive to humanity as a foreign uh, microbe that we brought down from Titan or from Mars. Well, just think back to the primatologist example. If we just, if all we, we had was a clear message, an undeniable message that said, hey, 
we're watching or hey we've been we've we've been checking you out like well, that alone is enough to just cause just just cataclysmic unrest around yeah. the world. Well, I mean, okay, so take the statement of intentions example. They, they're just saying, hey, here we are, here, here's something you need to know about us. What if that message decodes to, we are inbound to your planet at 75% of the speed of light, we're decelerating currently, and we'll arrive within less than one of your Earth years, and we're going to eradicate every living organism on your planet. Even if they're lying, even if that's not true, you could potentially cause catastrophic damage yeah. to Earth just by spreading the message. It could uh, be a killer meme. I think that the, the counter uh, here would be for, for everyone to agree on a lay down and play dead day. Uh, <laughs> the, the day that we realize the aliens will arrive, everyone just, just, just be really still, be really quiet. Exactly. This is a, so we were talking about this uh, before we uh, were researching this. It, I remember this TV show. Maybe some of you remember it. It was called Threshold, and it got like maybe, I don't know, like eight episodes. you remember that? Brent Spiner was in it and Peter Dinklage. And it was sort of the premise of that show was that like through like I think like a fourth dimensional entity was like somehow, in you know, uh, transmitting information that was basically designed for us to destroy ourselves so that they could take over our dimension. Well, yeah. I mean, th there are other ways you could do it, too. What if the coded schematics for the machine are for a planet killer super weapon? It's a suicide machine that they trick us into building, and they don't even have to come here to eradicate us. Or it could be, you know, what if the the, te the holy text of that Tau Cetian religion is actually very attractive? It's something that a lot of Earthlings convert to, and it's a you know destroy your planet religion. Any any of these things, I think, could be. Potentially possible, but the, you need to consider, uh, you know, the corollary of this, which is also, it could go the other way. You could send a meme from star system to star system that's encoded entirely in in information, where there's no exchange of matter that could be potentially very destructive, and we could be sending that meme entirely by accident. Yeah. Like, for instance, a warlike alien species receives our hang-in-there cat poster. <laughs> and they were they were about to sublime. They were about right. to just completely uh, drift off and uh, just uh, abandon all physical um, uh, complications. Right. And they're like, no, we should hang in here and let's go conquer this planet. This brings up what uh, we refer to on our show a lot, because Robert a big fan of Ian M. Banks and his culture series. We talk about outside context problems, if any of you are familiar with that. We did an episode on cargo cults a couple months ago, and this was a big one for that. So think about it in uh, relation to what we're talking about here with this cultural backward or forward contamination. If a, if a society or civilization encounters a problem or a threat or, or a complication like, like what we're talking about here, they have no context to prepare for or effectively deal with. That's an outside context problem. And... As, as far as E&M Banks goes, they're pretty much always fatal. Like, those societies are just yeah, like, in I mean, big trouble. Like, or at least transformed in a really... Right. I mean, exactly. the terrestrial example is, uh, you know, a, a less advanced society is, is out there on the beach, and then a, a warship shows up or a colonial vessel shows up. And then, you know, what are you going to do? You can't... If, to fight is to be annihilated. All you can do is give in and or meet it halfway and yeah. find, a, find a way to still retain your beliefs while accepting these new beliefs. In the example that we talked about on the show, and uh, this is real, cargo cults sprang up all over Pacific Island societies after the Second World War 
because of this very thing. American battleships would show up, or maybe planes would land, and they would see them, and they, it, it was very much like the beginning of Star Trek Into Darkness. They would literally start worshipping them. They yeah, would they build were, they were, radio towers and airstrips out of bamboo. It's sort of real-life evidence of the principle that technology you don't understand is magic to you. Yeah, I mean, they were exposed to the, the military-industrial complex. To the, I mean, not, not yeah. just to the, the physical uh, manifestation of it, but to the, the network that it represented and and what can you do? <laughs> well, you either change or you die, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but you extrapolate that out to a larger scenario with us or maybe another, maybe an alien civilization like that we're beaming cat memes to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets a little bit more difficult. Yeah. So I, I want to think about the the potential dangers of this kind of intellectual contamination between planets. And I'll, I'll venture a hypothesis. I'm not sure if this is true, but it's something to just think about. It, could it be true that any planet occupied by a species intelligent enough to understand written language, understand a coded message, and, and receive it with technology, it is possible to spread a meme that kills that species or potentially kills that planet? Yeah, and on that note, uh, I, I, I want to bring up the Federation again. I want to get back to the Prime Directive. So to join the United Federation of Planets, like generally well, you need to have your planet all together, right? You need to have a... a a unified culture to a certain extent. Everybody, there's going to be a certain amount of peace, right? Uh, and uh, certainly, I can. I, th- I think there have been a couple episodes here and there where that has been a, an issue that's come up. Like, yeah, I think uh, so. Like Planet wants to join the the Federation, but there's still like two factions. You you don't share our values, right? So, but I, but I wonder to what extent then is a mono uh, cultural world like this? Is it is it kind of like having an entire field with one crop? Is it like having a an asexual organism that has no genetic diversity? Uh, it makes it highly susceptible yeah. to a, a disastrous meme, to a disastrous uh, uh, cultural uh, contamination incident. Far more vulnerable, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, In the same way that I think you could argue that a diverse biosphere with a lot biosphere with lots of genetic diversity and different types of organisms uh, would be more resistant to an invasive pathogen. Could it be possible that uh, a diverse culture is more resistant to an invasive meme? So on one on one level, you could well imagine that that something like the Federation would want to say, "Hey, make sure you keep your your population a little bit diverse. Make sure you have uh, you know sort of um, a sort of flood barriers of language there to keep this thing from from disastrous ideas from running wild." But then on the other hand. What is the Federation but a, a kind of infection itself? Like it, it, had, it kind of sets back waiting for the right. planet to have a certain amount of uniformity and, and monocultural uh, susceptibility to infection, in this case a, a beneficial infection. So it's its own but, version of cultural forward contamination. Yeah, but, but, or maybe even inoculation if you want to look at it even Possibly, more positive yeah. spin. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. Uh, hey, if you want to learn more about Stuff to Blow Your Mind, if and indeed, if you're interested in booking us for some sort of an appearance, some sort of a live podcast uh, episode, much like the one you just heard, uh, you can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, uh, along with all the podcast episodes, the videos, the blog posts, and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any others, or if you want to give us ideas for episodes we should do in the future, you can email us, as always, at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.